Hello, and welcome back to The City Speaks. This is episode number eight. I'm Spark City, your host, as always. And uh, let's jump right into our first topic of the day, which is going to be, should developers and publishers be taking more risks with their games? Now, this can take many forms, but generally I'm talking about innovating um, in terms of gameplay or something like that. Innovation in a title, between titles, is, is pretty important to me. And so my opinion has been, you know, I've been pretty firmly on the side of, yes, you know, they should take more risks to avoid stagnation, to keep the industry moving. Um, and we've seen examples of this and periods of this in the past where games tend to start to feel really stagnant and it takes something to come out. It takes a certain game to come out sort of of nowhere and and sort of reshape the industry. I don't like when gaming stagnates. You know, I don't like those periods where we get into where everything seems to be a battle royale or everything seems to be a cover shooter or everything seems to be an open world grindathon or whatever. I don't like, you know, I I mean, of course, I have a comfort zone. Most people have a comfort zone, um, but I think we should try and take steps to get outside of that a little bit here and there. I dislike it even less when people whine about it constantly and then still buy the games um, <clears throat> because, you know, you're just kind of contributing to the problem. And like I said, I want changes that fundamentally alter the experience of a game. That's what I want personally. You know, if I, I, I bag on Assassin's Creed a lot, and part of the reason is because this this franchise kind of flies right in the face of that. They don't have a lot of innovative things that happen between titles. The biggest example I can think of off the top of my head was the ship uh, in Assassin's Creed 4. It was in Assassin's Creed 3, but it was like kind of a more of a cosmetic side quest. It wasn't super essential, but Black Flag needed the ship to make the game world feel different and important. And, you know, you're a pirate. Imagine being a pirate without a, a major emphasis on ship transportation. It wouldn't make any sense. Um, and, you know... To that point, you know, Brotherhood, or it was either Brotherhood or Revelations, one of the two games after two in the Ezio trilogy that added like a tower defense minigame. It's like, yeah, that game, that's fun for a moment, but it doesn't really change the game that much. You know, it's something that's kind of um, kind of random, a, a relatively minor change. It's optional, so it doesn't really help, um, in my opinion. And so for me, a game that came out this year that sort of embodies that, I think, is Horizon Forbidden West. I really liked Horizon Zero Dawn. Um, I thought it came out of relatively nowhere. There weren't, aren't a lot of games where you can run around an apocalyptic world taking down giant robot animals with a bow and arrow. And the combat is still very much there in Horizon Forbidden West, and, and it feels good and feels great. But there's not really a lot of innovation. It just feels like I'm playing Horizon Zero Dawn 2. And you can argue that's not bad, and a lot of people will. And a lot of people, you know, really enjoyed Horizon Forbidden West. And I, I had fun with my time with it, but it didn't stick with me the same way that Zero Dawn did. I can definitely think of, you know, moments in Zero Dawn that have really stuck with me, you know, finding the, the super cool armor at the end game. Um, some of the DLC was really cool in the, you know, in the cut, in the frozen cut up north of the map. Um, and taking down your first dinosaur in the, in the base is really cool. Um, Forbidden West doesn't really have any of those moments for me. Even though I played it, you know, this year, it still doesn't really, it didn't really stick with me. Yeah, they added like flying robots, you know, that's cool, but it, it was optional, it was end game, and it didn't change the game. Like it didn't, it, it was just a less efficient glider. They added a glider, which is cool. I think that's nice, changes how you get around the world. Um, and you got to think like, because the classic story is that Zero Dawn came out in 2017, one week before Breath of the Wild. And you know, they were playing Breath, the devs were playing Breath of the Wild after it came out. And Link gets a glider early on, and they're like, oh, I knew we forgot something in Zero Dawn. We should have given Aloy a glider. So they gave it to him for Bidden West. You know, the innovation was catching up to five years ago. It, I think the game, for me, generally has, like, a pretty expansion pack type feel. Obviously, it's, like, it's a huge game. It's, it's broad in scope. The map is massive. 
Um, I'm not saying in terms of like the amount of content, but it's more expansion pack in terms of like, if you played Zero Dawn and you liked it, you'll probably like Horizon Forbidden West for the same reasons you like Zero Dawn. It doesn't really have its own identity per se, which I mean, you know, brand loyalty or, or branding is important. You know, zero, you don't have to completely reinvent the wheel every time. But I think it's I think it's important to, to note the differences between that and something like God of War Ragnarok that came out this year. And Ragnarok itself, um, the story is is fantastic and I really enjoyed it. The gameplay is relatively similar, so they didn't innovate much on the gameplay. And in fact, what they hyped up about as an innovation on the gameplay, the verticality of the combat was like really overblown in my opinion. Like, cool, now I can get up on a ledge and then get back down the ledge and jump on a guy. Or I could just keep wailing on them the whole time and it's about as effective. Um, but the story was great. But I have to give a lot of the credit for God of War Ragnarok to 2018 because that was a risk. That game was a huge risk. They reinvented an entire franchise. They fundamentally changed not only the gameplay, but the story. They tried to characterize an absolute psychopath. Like, Kratos was not a, he was never supposed to be a relatable character. So the idea that you would come in and, and change that is, is that's risky, man. You risk alienating existing fans of the franchise. You risk the franchise losing its, its unique sense of identity. You risk a lot of stuff. Um, and that's a scary thing, you know? Um, and that was a risk that, that, uh, that Santa Monica Studios took. And I think as consumers, we kind of bear a bit of responsibility for this because, you know, we're buying the games. The games will not continue to be made if people don't buy them. That's sort of that's sort of how it how it works. You know, the industry is growing and growing and it's massive. Um, and so practices like market analysis are, are inevitable. You know, it morphs from a, more of a hobbyist market to a very commercial market. Publishers are going to want to see a return on their investments. So it's understandable that to some extent that there's not a lot of innovation. Um, but God of War was such a such an innovation. Like it, it came out of, well, it didn't come out of nowhere, but God of War 3 was the last mainline game and it's a sequel to that game. And I think God of War 3 was 2009? 2008 it was it was old man like the game was 10 plus years or i guess at the time close to 10 years old and god of war 2018 came out there and kind of reinvented the whole the whole thing so i know that comfort zones are a reality for a lot of us like myself included you know i just wish i think i wish folks would like kind of step outside that a little bit more but on the flip side you know like i was saying i as far as should developers and publishers take more risks on the flip side of that i would describe myself as, as a power user of video games. I play them dozens of hours a week. That's my job. Most people don't have 60 plus hours a week to spend on gaming, you know, so they're experiencing it at a slower rate than me um, and in a much more casual way. I'm a sweat lord, you know, so I experience games like intensely and I, I play God of War Ragnarok in a week. You know, I put 40 hours, 45 hours into it in a week and then I'm done with it. Most people play the games much slower. And for a lot of people, gaming is, is a form of escapism. It's not really like, they don't look at it as like an art form. You know, they come home after a long day of work or, you know, and or raising kids and they just want to chill and vibe, you know, and, and they don't want to think about challenging themes or topics and they don't want to be like testing their abilities or honing a skill set. I understand that. I totally respect that. I get like that sometimes. I, when I'm not gaming, I'm usually watching YouTube for much the same reason. Now, sometimes I'll be watching educational stuff, but I get coming home from work and being tired and... I've also worked <laughs> warehouse jobs and, and other dead end jobs as well. And it takes a lot of a lot of effort to, I guess, more critically enjoy a game. Um, and a lot of people just don't care to put that in. It's like TV shows, movies, like a lot of people aren't watching movies or TV shows critically or reading critically. They're just trying to enjoy the experience. There's nothing wrong with that. And that's something I've sort of been coming to terms with recently is like, 
I play video games way more than the average. I put 3,000 hours into Fall Guys in the first year, and then I got sick of it after that. Obviously, there's more to it than that. That's oversimplified, but I got sick of it. And so when I look at people still playing the game, most of whom are complaining about it, but that's besides the point. When I look at people still playing the game and I'm like, how could they possibly be still playing it? I have to remember that they didn't play 3,000 hours of it in a year. So they're experiencing it slower. So that could be one of the reasons they're not they're not burning out on it. So, you know, it's <clears throat> this is something that I've been thinking about a lot. And I've been trying to temper my own sort of righteous crusade about innovation in gaming. Because for most people, this is just an, an escapist entertainment medium. It's more than that to me, but it, it doesn't really, like it doesn't, that doesn't matter. You know, that my opinion is not the only one in the world, I guess. Um, you know, in one of my earlier episodes, I briefly touched on gaming as a much more active form of entertainment than TV or movies. This is sort of my self-definition, so feel free to dispute it. And even books to an extent, although I think books are a little bit more active. You know, you're still sitting there just reading someone else's story, but your imagination's doing a lot of the work. And I, I think books are kind of in, on the in-between there. Uh, but TV and movies are relatively passive. You know, you, you kind of just sit there and watch what happens. Um, and I think as gaming hit the mainstream, you know, in the late aughts, early 2010s, I think you sort of got a migration of people towards this entertainment form who are still looking for that passive amount of entertainment, but just sort of in a, in a unique and interesting way. And this is why I think you've seen a rise on, um, you know, like walking sims and visual novels and like more cinematic games in general. Um, the idea isn't about, you know, overcoming obstacles or, well, per se, like you know, grinding through obstacles or improving his skill set or anything like that or learning stu new stuff. It's just about experiencing the story. And it and it gives people a sort of novel way of consuming the media more than just watching the show. You get to feel like you have much more of a say in it. If you look at something like Detroit Become Human or even Life is Strange and stuff where you actually get to make a few decisions here and there and it can affect how the story goes. It's like a choose your own adventure in video game form. Um, and I'm always tempted to throw like life, life slash farming sims, you know, in there. I don't think the fit's quite the same though. Like usually farming sims and life sims are pretty forgiving, but you still have to practice like good time management and you can still have plenty of room for optimization of your character's daily routine and stuff like that. So um, I think those are still a pretty active form of video gaming. And there's nothing wrong with like, I'm not, I'm not flaming walking sims or visual novels. They're not for me because that's not why I play video games, but I have played a few of them and I've enjoyed my time with, with some of them, not so many visual novels, but I played Detroit Become Human and I've played a couple other walking sims and they're okay. They're not my thing, but I can totally see the appeal of them. You know, it's, it can, oftentimes they can deliver a very emotional story because the, uh, the game designers have a lot more control over the pacing of the game. You know, with an open world game, it's hard to have a super gripping story because I can just, you know, screw off for 20 hours and go farm some side quests or, you know, pick up a bunch of sticks or whatever. So um, there's nothing wrong with these types of games. Like there are totally just a, a novel way of, of experiencing video games in, in a more passive way. I think it does point towards a trend of people who are more accustomed to passive forms of entertainment moving into the gaming sphere, though. Again, not that there's anything wrong with that, but I think that does that that uh, bears um, sort of recognizing in some ways and i think at least initially folks will tend to gravitate towards that type of game because it's more similar to what they're used to from entertainment and escapism um and like i said you know i think a lot of folks just aren't looking for innovation in gaming at least not at the rapid pace i am because they they haven't gotten bored with what they have because they don't experience it as quickly as i do and that's why I got so excited when when God of War 2018 blew me away and when Ragnarok continued that tradition, you know? The devs took a massive risk, in my opinion. They over overhauled so much about the franchise, like I said. You know, the original trilogy had had its story, but it was kind of like more of a flimsy backdrop for the cathartic experience of being Kratos, who was like an unshackled psychopath, basically. 
Um, the combat was much more traditionally hack and slash, you know, like giant rooms full of enemies and you're hitting like 400,000 enemies at the same time and fast flowing combos. And the, the, the camera was even fixed. Like it was a more fixed camera angle that wasn't, wasn't mounted to the player. Uh, and, and most of the characters in God of War up to that point that weren't Kratos either probably died either because Kratos needed something they had or they didn't like, or he didn't like them or they got in his way for like a split second or they didn't compliment his stupid face tattoos or whatever. But then God of War 2018 comes out and it's like, boom, third person camera, completely different way of experiencing the story visually, much bigger focus on the story itself, a more and a more reserved, although it was still a pretty deep combat system. They took like a massive leap in trying to characterize Kratos of all people. You know, I give this game a lot of credit and the team behind it, of course, a lot of credit, because if you look at especially with uh, Ragnarok having just come out, we have a bit more context for this journey now. And I think god of war 2018 didn't do a whole lot in terms of like having these mind-blowing events in the game and i think that's good um in this case it worked out if you were in the in it for the long game if you just played it and and this is something i heard from a reviewer i very much respect zero punctuation he said you know at the end of the game it just felt like we pissed about a lot doing nothing pretty much and in some ways yeah i could get that you know i i just in case people haven't played god of war 2018 i won't spoiler spoiler i won't spoil anything but <clears throat> at the end of the game, the climactic boss fight is like, you're like, wait, really? That's it? You know, um, obviously it's still like emotionally charged and all this stuff. And it sets up a lot of stuff in God of War. But that was the point of it. Uh, God of War Ragnarok. But that was the point of it. it. It laid the groundwork and it didn't try and characterize Kratos or build the world too quickly. And I think that's that's important. You know, there was never this sense that Kratos is, was father of the year to his, his son. He's still obviously very emotionally damaged. He's still grappling with who he wants his, his son to be and who he wants to be for his son versus who he was in Greece. And that struggle is there. It's just not quite as front and center. It's, it's quite understated in a lot of ways because they have so many crazy things going on in the world around them. They, they could have easily turned Kratos into like, you know, like a badass one-liner machine with very superficial flaws. You know, this is known as like the Marvel approach to character writing where you get like... Tony Stark's going to be a snarky asshole for the game and make a whole bunch of one-liners until somebody says something that strikes a nerve and then he's going to look at them with his pained expression and say something super poignant. Um, it, they could have done that with Kratos and they could have dusted their hands off and knocked off early for lunch and released a very bland game and it would have still sold gangbusters because God of War's name is very strong, but they didn't. The team, especially the creative team, the the obviously everybody involved in the game, but the, the cinematic side, the, the writers and the artists and stuff put a ton of effort into Kratos' story and made his character arc a lot more believable, I think, rather than sort of like that low effort feel good that you find in, in sort of these snackable movies. After playing Ragnarok, I think the risk they took in the story aspect of the new duology totally paid off. You know, the series reinvented itself in a very significant way, and this was a major risk. You could have alienated an entire fan base, and but these games are pretty much universally critically acclaimed. Now, did they tend to gravitate towards the flavor of the month in having like a pseudo open world, very cinematic? Did they gravitate towards the flavor of the month in 2018 in terms of game design? Sure, maybe. A lot of games are coming out in like pseudo open world when they might not have needed to be. But the, the God of War has always been very cinematic. Um, so I wouldn't say that is a point against it. And this kind of example brings me back to the original question. Should game devs and publishers, specifically publishers, I think more, more often, but should they take risks? Should they take more? I think there's an argument for both sides, obviously. Like I said, you know, most people aren't looking for that. So why would you, if you want your industry to be at least somewhat bankable, why would you be taking what you see as unnecessary risks? Most people just want more of the same thing. 
Um, most people are really like being in their comfort zone. And I think for a lot of people with entertainment being escapism, challenging that that notion of their comfort zone is is not desirable for them. Um, but I think that these risks and innovations usually lead toward the biggest booms in gaming. You know, the thing about comfort zones is that like they had to start somewhere. They didn't always exist. At some point, we weren't in our respective comfort zones. And then something happened. The stars aligned. We tried something new and we fell in love with it. And I think that's a good exercise to try and push out of that from time to time. You know, in my in my Road to 100 Platinums, the 50 games that I had on my list for this year, I tried to put a wide variety of games and a wide variety of genres, even ones I didn't like. You know, I had a life sim on there. I had a JRPG. I had some shooters. I had Uncharted. And yeah, most of the time it just confirmed my already existing opinion. But I also experienced a few games I would have never otherwise touched, you know. Control was an absolutely wonderful surprise. So was Returnal for me. And Spiritfarer like blew me away. Um, and I would have probably never picked up these games if I hadn't pushed myself to do so. Same thing with Persona 5. I platted it this year, but I, I first played it the year before just because I had it for free um, when I got my PS5 uh, as part of the PS Plus collection. And that game was like, it, it's one of my favorite games of the last 20 years. You know, it's, it's an amazing game and I love it. And I don't like JRPGs traditionally. So it's always important to push yourself out there. And this is why like, what did Persona do? You know, this is like a different conversation, but what did Persona do different from an, a regular JRPG that really drew me in? And I, I couldn't point to any one thing. The writing is pretty solid. Um, the localization is good. The voice acting is great. The gameplay, when I look at the gameplay, like it's kind of dull. It's just your typical kind of Pokemon elemental weaknesses versus elemental resistances game. Um, but, but it's very stylish. The soundtrack's a banger. And it just kept pulling me along. And uh, and the life sim, that you know, the sort of life sim aspect versus dungeon crawling aspect is really cool. I'd never played a, a Persona game or a Shin Megami Tensei game, so I had never experienced this to this degree. And yeah, I thought it was really awesome. Um, so with all that praise about God of War 2018, I'm sure there's, you know, probably a feeling amongst the listeners that I'm going to announce Ragnarok as my game of the year. Elden Ring, baby! And this kind of ties into our second topic of the podcast, which is difficulty as an accessibility feature. This is a massive debate, and I'm not I'm not trying to close it out definitively. I'm not going to be one of those people who's like, you want the answers? Then listen to my podcast. The city speaks. Find me on Spotify. Um, there's been a massive rise in accessibility features being added into games, you know, and they're hoping to accommodate folks with all manners of disabilities, whether it's, you know, better text options for the, for the visually impaired, colorblind options, you know, uh, or sorry, text options for visually or hearing impaired, I guess better colorblind options, different control schemes, e ability to reduce motion sickness. Like, I think this is awesome. I want more people to play more games, you know? Part of my spiel about exclusivity on consoles needing to die is so that I want people who have Xboxes to be able to play God of War Ragnarok because I think it's a great game and I would love them to experience it. Um, even if they don't end up liking it, that's fine. I want more people to experience this amazing entertainment medium. Um, and I think there's so much, so much to learn from it and so much fun to be had from it. So difficulty is often discussed as sort of like, should it be considered an accessibility feature? Should every game have um, easy modes and hard modes to accommodate folks who might not be as good at video games as other people? Um, I don't think there's like a really firm consensus from the industry. So let's let's go over a few points from either camp before I give you my, my take on it. So the folks who say it's not an accessibility option generally use the form of a phrase like, not everything has to be for everyone. This is a massive can of worms, obviously, to get into. Uh, but a lot of the time, if something is a massive can of worms, that kind of means it's an important topic that should be discussed. Um, there's a large part of me that agrees with that statement on its face, at least. 
I've gamed for a long time and I've watched series lose their identity as they try to cater to every possible demographic or try to follow the hot new trend in order to capitalize on, on an excited market. Um, I do think on some level it's unreasonable to try to please everyone, or at least generally it's more effective to focus on a narrower group of people to please. Um, and I've heard, I read recently on Twitter, somebody said, you know, that the phrase, not everything has to be for everyone, is ableist and exclusionary. Um, and again, on its face, I can see the logic there because a lot of the time people will use that statement as like a, as, as, as gatekeeping. But I think on principle, I disagree that that statement is ableist and exclusionary. At the end of the day, it's an entertainment medium and, and it's a luxury, right? Nobody's, you know, on the, on the basis level, nobody is being forced to play any of these games. Nobody is sitting there with a gun in their head or a gun, a gun held to their head, forcing them to try and beat Elden Ring, and, but they can't, you know? I think features like colorblind mode and text sizing are excellent features, and I think it's in a developer's best interest to have these because, you know, it'll help open your game up to more audiences. But if somebody wants to make a challenging game, I think, you know, the developer kind of gets to set the baseline there. And sometimes, you know, uh, from a more cynical point of view, it sometimes feels like a lot of the insistence on adding easier difficulties stems from FOMO, you know, fear of missing out. Obviously, when Elden Ring released, this debate was was raging. And now, you know, six months out, eight months out from release, I guess nine, nobody seems to care about Elden Ring having difficulty settings anymore, you know? And that, to me, sort of indicates, like, obviously people aren't going to be banging on about the same thing for nine months at a time. But if as soon as the buzz for the game goes away, your issues with it also go away, then it kind of just feels like a lot of that's triggered by FOMO. And this obviously isn't the case for everybody, but... Um, so on the flip side, let's talk about the flip side, you know, there are people out there who have, you know, reduced motor function capabilities who might physically not be able to perform the tasks the game is asking of them. Should these folks who generally want to play the game but are literally physically unable to do so be barred from playing it because the game has an inaccessible difficulty? And as again, as somebody who wants more people to play more games, I say no, they shouldn't be barred by physical limitation, much like any other disability. A lot of the time, like I said, the dismissal of adding difficulty levels takes the form of gatekeeping, which is stupid and dumb and stupid. Um, even with Elden Ring, like most Souls veterans will say it's the easiest game of the franchise to somebody who's very proud about having having beaten it. And grown adults are taking taking time out of their day to flame somebody for using an overpowered build character build or something like that. It's nonsense. You know, everybody's notion of difficulty is relative to their own skill set. It's a very subjective thing. Someone who's just picking up a Souls game for the first time in Elden Ring is probably going to need every bit of help they can get while they figure out the controls and learn all the mechanics. Whereas folks who have investment in the series, like myself, are going to get into the swing of things much more quickly. So where do I stand on this? Um, my take is that, you know, again, your typical centrist wishy-washy, it should be left to developer discretion. I don't think difficulty settings are necessary, absolutely necessary. Um, you could definitely argue that it's, again, in a, just like colorblind settings or text size settings or motion sickness reduction, it's in a developer's best interest if they want to reach a broader audience. But I think another thing that's kind of interesting, and Elden Ring's a great example of this, is that I think people tend to get hung up on having an option in the menu that says it's shifting the game from easy to normal to hard or whatever. Um, Elden Ring has ways of doing this that are organic to the game uh, without having to switch a menu right? There are builds in the game that are extremely overpowered and will trivialize 90% of the boss fights all the way to the final boss. Most of the optional, most of the hardest bosses in the game are optional with the exception of, I guess, Godskin duo, but Millennia, Moog, a lot of these like super hard bosses are completely optional. Um, and so you could absolutely 
use overpowered weapons, overpowered magic, overpowered summons, use the mimic tier. Um, and a lot of people did and took a lot of flag for it, which is stupid because, you know, insecure adult human beings are gatekeeping on what constitutes actually eating, beating Elden Ring. Um, you could absolutely overlevel your character. You know, nobody, nobody complains that Pokemon doesn't have a difficulty accessibility because if you ever really wanted to get past the hard part, you could just go somewhere else and grind for about five hours and come back and steamroll whatever gym leader was, had the misfortune of trying to stand in your way. You can do a similar thing in Elden Ring. You can explore around. You can find a new area that's that's more suited to your level. You can grind up a few levels extra that might make the difference and might make it a little bit easier for you to survive. You could find better weapons. You could do all these other things. And so there, there are easier modes in Elden Ring. There are easier ways of playing it than others. My way of playing it was probably, it was, it was fine. I would say it's probably pretty average. You know, the long sword, big shield kind of thing that I do in every Souls game. It made some bosses harder. It made some bosses absolutely free. Um... And I think that's sort of what people get hung up on. It's like difficulty settings, like I'm going to ratchet down all the enemy's health and damage and aggression. Like, fine, sure, that's that's an acceptable way of doing it. But I think there are ways of doing it in Elden Ring that already exist and that are much more organic to the game than going to a menu and, and flicking a difficulty down. Um, I mean, I used a, a relatively underpowered build on Millennia and I, I was just too proud to say that my, my build kind of sucked. So I just powered through and I... I, uh, I mauled it on her for about four hours straight <laughs> until I finally beat her and it felt great. But I think Elden Ring, you know, and the Souls franchise in general was designed with a hardcore audience in mind. And I don't think that's exclusionary or ableist in, in any way. Um, in the late 2000s and early 2010s, games were becoming like more cinematic. They held your hand more. They took the form of more of like a checklist or a conveyor belt. And there was obviously a demand in the market for a more hardcore title, and Dark Souls filled that niche. And part of the reason I think this stems from FOMO is because when, when Dark Souls came out, people who liked it liked it, and people who didn't like it didn't like it. There weren't a lot of people clamoring for, for difficulty uh, settings. And that doesn't mean that the people who are doing it today are wrong, but I think it points again to more of that FOMO. When Dark Souls was a relatively niche thing, and it wasn't the massive encompassing franchise that's influenced a lot of games over the last 10 years people didn't care about missing out on it. So when Elden Ring comes out and it becomes like the fastest selling game of the year or whatever, um, people feel like they want to be involved in that. So that I think that's where a lot of uh, a big chunk of this comes from is, is just FOMO of like missing out on something that feels really exciting and fun that you're, you might not be able to deal with. Um, and I think that, you know, and this is more specific to the Soul series in general, Elden Ring being a part of that, is that the struggle to overcome the game is, is part of the overall theme and artistic expression. You know, there's a genuine sense of pride you get from overcoming a tricky boss or learning a new skill or a new attack pattern from the boss and, and putting in the practice and finally getting over this absolute pain in the ass of a human being or undead or whatever. Um, like I said, I, I think people get hung up on settings in a menu way too much. You know, there's very accessible ways to build your character in Elden Ring that make a lot of the bosses a lot easier. Um, I think one of the reasons I'm wary of phrasing difficulty as an accessibility issue is, is precisely because of the nature of how subjective it is. In Ragnarok, there's five difficulties with the easiest being called Give Me Story. This nuked the combat for the game, and it made it very easy for those who were just into the game for the story, and who would blame you, the story kicked more ass than a donkey punting business during busy season. Um, people wanted to just play the story. And, and didn't want to, you know, get bogged down fighting tough bosses or whatever. And that's fine. But there's still going to be someone out there who struggles with give me story. And so where are the calls to make that game even easier? 
you know? And this is why I think people get hung up on settings in a menu too much. Why not have 10 difficulty settings? Why not 100? Why not a slider that goes down from like, just watch the cutscenes to I'm going to kill you if you step on a blade of grass kind of kind of difficulties, you know? Why not have a slider like that? Obviously, this is slightly facetious, right? But my point is, I think the developer should be allowed to set the baseline level of difficulty for their game that they're creating, that they think suits the game and sets the goals they want the player to overcome. I think this might be the problematic aspect of coming to gaming, which has traditionally been a skill-based, more active form of entertainment, with a more passive mindset, is you kind of just want things to happen you know you, you just want to see the story you know and, and if that's the case you know why not watch a movie or read a book like there are people man like there are people who have beaten elden ring on a dance pad there are people who have beaten elden ring with like a digipen you know like a, a drawing tablet there's a person who the people have done no hit runs there are people there was a guy who did an all bosses no hit run but he also did a uh, fists only run and not fist weapons like bare fists and he took down fire giant which is probably the, one of the healthiest bosses in the game just by punching him punching does like five to ten damage per hit fire giant has like seven thousand hp it took him five hours and he did it you know those are the ways that's hard mode that's super ultra mega hard difficulty i had a buddy when i was younger who had cerebral palsy on the right side of his body he's he could you know he could walk uh, but his you know right hand was not very dexterous he couldn't really use it and we would play NHL. He had a GameCube. We would play one of the NHLs on it. And he, holding his controller one-handed, would whoop my ass nonstop. And I'm not saying, you know, like, everybody with a disability needs to just get the fuck over it. But what I'm saying is, there are ways to do it. And I think that Elden Ring has provided means within the game without necessarily having the tangible, easy diff or difficulty setting in the menu to make the game a lot easier to a newer player. It's widely agreed, even among non-gatekeepers, that Elden Ring is the easiest game to get into and it's the easiest game to complete and this is you know you can even see this in data if you look at uh if you look at trophies for example because trophies are a decent measure of who owns the game versus who actually beats the game because you have trophies for beating the game the number of people who uh, or the percentage of people who have beaten the game is much higher than even something like horizon forbidden west or god of war ragnarok or god of war 2018 i guess because ragnarok just came out that have these difficulty settings the number of people who have beaten Elden Ring is higher than the number of people who have beaten Dark Souls. The platinum in Elden Ring is 11% unlock rate. One in nine people who buys the game platinums the game. And this is a fabled Dark Souls game that's super difficult. So my point is, you have options. They are not in the menu, but you have options to make the game way easier for yourself. And so I think that, I think that demanding a developer accommodate something is, is a bit bizarre in, in some in, in most cases, I think, you know, like my parallel that I've drawn before is, is like, I'm not a moviegoer, right? I'm not a huge movie guy. I'm much more of like a casual movie fan. I like light, fun Disney movies that, you know, don't make me too sad or anything like that. And so, and I'm really, really not good with horror games or movies. I'm really not good with scary stuff. I hate being scared. It's the worst. And so imagine I'm, I'm chilling and everybody's talking about this new scary movie that's coming out. You know, everyone's saying it's like, oh, it's so good. It's such an amazing, you know, the story's so cool, but I hate being scared. So the equivalent action for me here would be demanding that they release a movie without all the scary stuff so that I could watch it and still experience the story. But the scariness in horror movies is the main draw. Like that's the con that's the broader context for the story. 
you know, without it, it's not a horror movie. Like horror, scariness is integral to the experience. And I think in the same way, difficulty is integral to a Souls game. Scariness is subjective, completely subjective. But I've never seen anybody be like, we need five different cuts of the same movie to be released based on how scared people want to be. Should I be upset that this entire genre of movie isn't made specifically for me? It, especially for, again, especially for some of this entertainment, I don't have to watch this movie. I'm going to live without being seeing this. I can read a plot synopsis on Wikipedia if I'm that scared. You know, if I don't want to watch the movie and be scared, I can just go read a plot synopsis on Wikipedia. Is it the same thing? No, I have done this multiple times, by the way. It's not the same as seeing the movie. But at the end of the day, this is entertainment media. You shouldn't be that concerned about like, oh, I want to play something because everybody says it's good. If it's too scary for you, if it's too hard for you, everybody's got their limits, man. I don't think that's inherently exclusionary and ableist that that movie uh, production companies and directors aren't releasing five cuts of a movie so that I can watch it and A, not get the intended experience that was meant from the movie, i.e. to be scared. You know, it just doesn't make sense. Like, I, I don't think it's exclusionary ableist to for a developer to exercise their own discretion on a game they're designing. You can definitely argue that it would be in their best interest um, to add stuff like this, just like, you know, traditional, more traditional accessibility options like colorblind mode and text scaling and things like that. Um, but I think video games are art and, and, so something like difficulty level can very much influence the direction of that art. And if somebody wants the struggle to be part of the game, then that should be very much allowed and people shouldn't be demanding too much of, of, a, of a developer, in my opinion. Um, that should be left to the developer's discretion. And I think that in the end, most people will agree with that. There will be people who get the FOMO, but I think that's a pretty reasonable stance because, again, in Elden Ring, you have very easy ways of making or very... Um, very direct ways of making the game easier for yourself. You can rely on summons. You can cast from a distance. Have a really tanky summon and then build a very uh, arranged, you know, like a mage or something that attacks from range. Boom. You have somebody to tank for you while you deal a whole bunch of damage from the back. There you go. Use the mimic tier, which basically clones your character. And so then you can split the boss's aggro. You know, like there's so many ways to make the game easier and so many different ways to control your character. So for me... I think that a lot of the time, um, this shouldn't be like, this shouldn't be mandatory. This, this shouldn't be like something that people demand and, and label somebody or a developer as exclusionary and ableist because they didn't make a game that you can just watch or they didn't make a game that, I don't know. It, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, but anyway, that's going to do it for the day. I hope everybody enjoyed this. Uh, I'm not sure how long this was. This felt kind of short, uh, but I got into the topics pretty hard. I did enjoy these two topics. Thinking about them was super fun. And uh, I hope you all took something from it. If you do, if you agree, if you disagree, let me know. Give me some feedback. Find me on Twitch at twitch.tv slash sparkcity. Um, and if you're in my Twitch chat, you can type exclamation mark discord and join my discord and get in touch with me there. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at the Spark City. And uh, yeah, if you, if you want to leave some feedback, by all means. Uh, thank you all for listening very much. I really appreciate it. This episode, as usual, is sponsored by myself because I'm doing this because I want to. And I hope that everybody has a great week ahead. Um, and if you're playing God of War Ragnarok, Nord, I hope you enjoy it. And if you haven't played either of the latest two Gods of War, Winter, I hope you enjoy them if you get around to them. Thanks, everybody.